I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you gotta decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. This episode comes live from the BFI South Bank, where the Mark Kermode Live in 3D show is doing its annual Christmas special, and it's a guest packed show. We have Steve McQueen, the director of 12 Years a Slave, whose new movie Widows is shaping up as a big awards contender. Tim Wardle, director of the extraordinary documentary Three Identical Strangers. Josie Lawrence will be talking about the films that changed her life and also giving us a musical surprise. And the star of Bohemian Rhapsody, Rami Malek. So sit back and enjoy Kermit on Film. Hello, everybody. This is, uh, this is the end of our third year. And as you know, uh, during the December show, we, we like to do a kind of a, a Christmas special. Today is no exception. We have a fantastic show lined up for you. It's a real, you know, it's a real Christmas cracker. We're going to leap straight in. Please welcome to the stage the fantastic Steve McQueen. We're starting as we mean to continue. Steve, firstly, huge congratulations on Widows, which I think is, is brilliant. As you know, I write the reviews for The Observer, and I gushed over the film The Observer. I gave it five stars. I just, I absolutely loved it. I'd like to show a clip. Do you want to just say something very quickly about where Widows comes from? Okay. Um, 13 years old, in Ealing, lying on mother's carpet, head being propped up by my hands, too close to TV, I see this thing called Widows Come on the Screen, written by Linda LaPlante, and it just takes me. Um, first of all, I see heroes who I can identify with. They're being sort of uh, judged by their parents. They're being sort of deemed not to be capable. Uh, at that time, I was sort of projecting myself onto Sean Connery and people like, you know, um, you know Johnny Weismuller, you know, playing Tarzan or whatever. <laughs> but for the first time, I saw um, people who, heroes rather, that I, could, I understood how they sort of surf and navigated stereotypes and uh, to get to their goal, put, put certain, certain things on, on, on its head. So that, that was, a, it was, a, it was a real sort of revelation. And you met the writer, Linda LaPlante, where? Buckingham Palace, as you do, yeah. <laughs> I was, uh, do you want to just give us a bit of how that happened? Because I've a, been to Buckingham Palace, I never met Linda LaPlante. <laughs> uh, there was a private, I don't know, it was, it was some arts event, and then there was a private sort of side room for, for people to meet the Queen, there about ten of us. And she was there, and I just said to her, um, what happened to widows? And uh, that was the start of the conversation. And the Queen said, I didn't write it, Linda LaPlante wrote it. <laughs> 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 OK, let's see a clip from Widows. 
So over here we have $2 million. 20 Tupperware boxes, each box has $100,000 in $100 bills. It weighs 44 pounds. Now over here we have $2 million. 40 Tupperware boxes, each box has $50,000 in $50 bills. It weighs 88 pounds. I feel like I'm in school. Tell me about it. We gotta start thinking like professionals. We're in business together. There's not gonna be some cozy reunion. After this job, we're done. We have three days to look and move like a team of men. The best thing we have going for us is being who we are. Why? Because no one thinks we have the balls to pull this off. One of the things that I love about the film is that it, although it, do, it does have leads, but it's an ensemble cast. Everywhere you look, everyone is at the, the height of the game. At the centre of it, you have that group of women. How did you cast them? I mean, it, it seems to me that the whole project was to do with you wanting to find, you know, good roles for actors that you really liked. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the first person we cast was Cynthia Revo. Um, I have a great casting director called Francine Maisler. And she alerted me to uh, Cynthia, who was playing on Broadway, the, the Color Purple. So I went to see her, and uh, as soon as I saw her, I thought, okay, yeah, that, that's Belle, immediately. And she had never been in the movie before, but I just thought she was actually amazing. Yeah. Um, and she's a, you know, she's a Londoner, which is kind of, I didn't know at the time. Um, then it was, then it was uh, Michelle Rodriguez, and Michelle said no to me. So <laughs> I, then I promptly went on to try to audition, well, basically audition over 100 women. And, I couldn't find anyone who, for me, felt like uh, Linda. So I, I, I met her in LA, went back to her in LA, and she was very grateful that she uh, agreed to meet. And uh, I convinced her, and that was it. So that was it. Was again, I think there's a lot of journeys for for actors uh, as far as resisting certain roles. But you know, I think through this role of her playing Linda, she discovered her mother in a way. Michelle has had to sort of portray herself in a very tough way, you know, in a way since she's growing up as a young young woman. And I think through this process of, 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 of making Widows, she discovered another sort of power um, within, um, within to be, how, to be, how to present yourself as a woman. Yeah. Anyway, and then there was uh, um, Elizabeth Dubecky, who was amazing. I, I, I met her once, I think I read carpet very briefly, and I was high and by, I, was like, I didn't really want to be there. Uh, I tell her to be there for a friend, I, I regretted it. <laughs> and, then, and, then we, and then someone told me she was in this thing, play uh, called The Maids. And I loved that play, and I thought, okay, let, let she bring her into audition, and, and that was it. Uh, and she was amazing in the audition, of course, and th that was it. Um, and then, of course, Viola Davis. Yeah, I was talking to a few other people, and I just walked into, into this room, opened the door, I thought, okay, that's Veronica, and that was it. When I saw the film, I just thought, she's an absolute dead cert for, a, for an Oscar nomination and an Oscar. Now, I know that we're into awards season, and this is horribly unpredictable, and awards, you know, generally are all over the place. How big of a deal is it that award season is coming up? Do you care? Do you try to just sort of ignore it? Well, it helps the film financially, I think. That's, I think that's does it? A, oh, it does, it does. Right. If you get nominated, it does help the film financially. I think these kind of films, or films that, you know, again, are like this, it just it brings attention to it in a broader sort of uh, sense of, of, of the word. But for me, I think, you know, I think I, a long, long time ago, I, did, I decided not to judge myself by anyone's ruler a long, long time ago. Because, you know, when you grow up, for me, as a black child growing up in, in, in London, and you know, you've, since you get into institutions, you understand the rules of the game as such. Mm -hmm. And again, I think with a lot of you know, black children, the black people, you grow up critical at a very, very early stage in your life. So I decided long ago not to be judged by anyone's thermometer or anyone's sort of ruler. I, I will not do that. I want to focus on my work and, and, and my sort of journey as such. Because this is a marathon, I know what I want to do, I know exactly how, how I want to pursue 
my art. And I think that's very important, not to be judged by the people, because if that's the case, then you're, 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 you're in a, a world of uh, problematics. The first time I met you and interviewed you was for, uh, it was a culture show piece that was talking about your art uh, work. And we were trying to get um, a clip of Deadpan. In fact, actually, we couldn't find what we could find was the clip from the culture show, which had this in it. Yeah. I'm just going to show this. So forgive me for putting your work in the context of me talking all over it. But um, it's, <laughs> have a look at this, because I think this is, this, this is a McQueen's love of cinema is evident from his early installations, which reference cinema classics. Deadpan is a film that Steve made for a solo exhibition that he then went on to have here at the ICA in 97. Steve took this coup de cinema moment from Buster Keaton where the sort of front facade of an entire house falls on top of him. Steve sort of reworked this and repeats this motif. I mean, I think he's really kind of extrapolating and, and sucking out all of the formal and, and cinematic qualities. So many of these films are actually relatively short, but they're incredibly addictive. Someone looks at them again and again and again and again and again. I mean, I don't know anybody who has seen that pan only once. You know, it creates a situation where one can just not stop watching it and, you know, enter the loop. Okay, so the terribly awkward position of sitting you there while you hear other people mm. explain what your work is about. But, um, Deadpan, I think that phrase about it being addictive, that there is, I know almost no one who's seen it just once. People do watch it over and over again. Do you still have great memories of making that piece? Uh, yeah, I remember being, it was, I actually shot it in Pinewood, and I remember sort of uh, standing on the spot. Well, actually, before I stood on the spot, they put a dummy there on the spot. Um, <laughs> just, to, you know, just to see how, what, 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 you know, how, how it will go down, so just to show me. So the facade of the house fell down, it's quite heavy. And out like a rocket, that pipe went, up in the air, shot up like a rocket, the air pressure just <laughs> compressed and it shot up in the air. I thought, oh, effing hell. <laughs> um, and then me next, and it was kind of interesting because every time like, we, did, we, we did the take, we did a few takes, of course, uh, the, the stunt coordinator would sort of hypnotize me. All right, mate, you're standing still, it's gonna happen again. All right, it was, it was like going back into a corner every, every, every round. So sort of hypnotize me, just stay still. No, it was great, it was, it was fun. I honestly don't know how you managed to stay still because you can see as the thing comes down, the wind, it blows your T-shirt up. I mean, it's, you know... I was young. <laughs> yeah. And did you always think that feature films was what you wanted to do? Or was it just something that happened organically? I've, I've, not, I've not found out yet exactly what I want to do because I, I still do, I'm still doing all kinds of things. And I think, you know, I'm an amateur first and foremost. And I mean that seriously in the sense of the way of not sort of understanding everything and trying to explore, trying to experiment, trying to sort of uh, find out uh, what works, what doesn't work. And it's, it's very important to sort of, for me at least, to keep um, discovering things. I want to show a clip from Shame, which is a, a musical moment. There was a programme recently on the radio in which you were talking very eloquently about the use of music in your film. You were talking about particularly in 12 Years a Slave and, and the song. And I remember seeing Shame, I think I'd interviewed you for, for Hunger, which has that very, very long, you know, unedited sequence. And I was really struck by this, this piece in Shame. It's a, it's a very haunting rendition of the song. I want to just have a look at it. We're not going to show the whole thing, just a little bit of it, and then I'll just ask you something about it afterwards. Oh, so this is from Shame. Mm -hmm. These vagabond through 
there's no place to, to end that, actually. I just, just want to let the whole thing uh, run. It's so mesmerising. What is it for you that's going on in that scene? Because I remember sitting in the cinema with literally everybody was just like that. You could feel the electricity in the air. What was it? Well, Brandon and his sister have a past. We don't know what that past is exactly, but there's a, there's a, there's a line in it, um, in the movie, uh, which is, I remember, I mean, Abby Morgan, who wrote the screenplay, was, was thinking about banging heads on the wall, about how do we talk about the past without sort of, you know, saying what, we, don't, we, we didn't even know exactly what that past was, but what was so beautiful that Abby came up with was that line, um, what was that line? We're not bad people, we just come from a bad place. Jesus. <laughs> I, I genuinely love your films, you know. Right. Well, that's it, you know, exactly, exactly that. And I saw this absolutely, it just said everything that needed to be said, and it was, it was kind of beautiful. It was like, wow, this is it. This song, I mean, it, it's kind of, when you, New York, New York, of course, is, it was written for Liza Minnelli for the film New York, New York by Martin Scorsese. I and everyone else I knew thought it was a classic Sinatra song written in the like 50s or yeah. 60s or whatever early 60s, and the, the lyrics are just so sort of for me very bluesy. They're sad lyrics. They're not happy lyrics. I'm, I'm leaving today. I want to be a part of. It. Wanna? She's not. He's not a part of it. So it's this a wanting, yearning, and and leaving. So through her singing, um, she communicates to Brandon in a way, and he knows. Michael uh, has been playing Brandon. He knows what she's saying without sort of saying it. So, you know, that's what it is, abstraction, communication. <laughs> you do have a brilliant way of coming up with a, you know, a, a single image, a, a motif, something, or, you know, a line, whatever it is, that's particularly resonant. And I remember when you did the, the stamps, and I hadn't seen them before. I'd, been, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd read about them, but I remember actually going just to the cabinet mm. and seeing them for the first time. For those who don't know, can you just say what those are? Because um, it's so, so this is, I, I was given a role as an official war artist, I think 2003, I think, and I went to Iraq a little bit before that, uh, and um, I had to come up with an idea of an artwork to re represent the Iraq war, and somehow um, I came up with the idea of stamps. And I wanted these stamps to actually go through the actual bloodstream of the country. I actually wanted them to be made of stamps. So basically, there was a, we got permission from uh, about 95, no, 93% of the families of Mexican to produce images of their loved ones who died in, in, in the Iraq war. And what I wanted to do in that way is that every person who went to the door in the morning to pick up the mail had contact with an individual soldier. And we sort of, we removed the media from, from, from the sort of the contact, because often is the case, in fact, always, it would, our, our communication as far as war or whatever is considered is through the media. So to have someone land on your doorstep, image of the doorstep who died for queen and country, for you as such, and have that immediate sort of communication was, was what I wanted. Um, but unfortunately, the Royal Mail was not having it. But also, we had, we had an early day motion in Parliament about it, but you know, there was arguments, and in fact, arguments are still going on. So. Who knows if it ever gets um, actually done. But uh, in the meantime, I made a cabinet of each individual soldier. We put it in the, in, in the uh, in, um, Manchester Public Library, the first public library in, in the United Kingdom. And I remember all the next of kin came and, and whatnot. And it was amazing. It was like tea and tears. It was very British, very, very British. For somebody who's so thoughtful about what they do, I mean, how do you deal with, for example, when you know, 12 Years a Slave happened and the, the, whole, the whole Oscar thing, it was such a big moment. Are you particularly quizzical about it or did it, was it just like, this is exactly the right thing or how did you feel about it? 
and um, I mean, it's his, a historical moment. Yeah, um, it's, ooh, uh, um, how do I feel? How do I feel, how do I feel about it now? Or how do I feel about that? I, it was great in a way. It was it was definitely great because you know it was definitely one of those things where the tension on, on that on Solomon Northup and the film was 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 great because you know and 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 people went to see that movie because of that story and it was interesting in the way that people wanted to see this story of a man who was in bondage and uh, and the whole idea of other people who were in bondage at that time they were, the focus was on slavery and it was just it was it was it was pretty amazing in that sense um and also you know for me what was most important is that myself and Montel Williams a friend of friend of mine now we got the the, the book of Solomon North um, uh, you know 12 years slave into every single school in America so right. that was important. Again, I think those kind of things outweigh everything else. So to and you came the across the book because it was you, so you, my wife found it in a bookshop. No, in... it was my wife. We went. We were sort of uh, both sort of researching. She found a book, Twelve Year Slaves. And what's this book? And she she started reading it. Said, Steve, I think I got it because I had the idea of a free man who had been caught, has been captured into slavery. I had that idea myself. So the fact that this actually idea was. There it was. There was the bloody script, the book, 12 Years of Open Slave. <laughs> and the fact that I live in Amsterdam and I know and who Anne Frank is and I, don't, I didn't know who Solomon Northup was was kind of incredible. Yeah. So that was, yeah, that, was, that was great to get that out there. And, and, uh, but it's kind of like, yeah, that's done. Next. I'm going to ask you a last thing because I know that you have to fly. What have you seen recently that you've oh, really loved? I'm not going to ask you to criticise anything. What have you seen that you've loved? No, no. I, I haven't seen anything yet because I've, I've just been so busy. I really do new movies. But I did see some Mike Get Hot again the other day. And, um, and it's still brilliant. It's so fast. <laughs> I mean, that movie is so contemporary. It's, it's astonishing. I mean, you know, Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon are on that train, I think, like, in, in 10 bloody minutes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it kind of makes sense. I want another cup of coffee. I mean, it's genius. Did you see it? Because they did a theatrical re-release of it. Did you see it on the big screen? I, I didn't. I saw it on my own. But no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go see it in the cinema. Because it's really worth yeah, seeing, because you amazing. forget just how beautiful it looks. And also, you're right, just how fast, but the action sequences are action-packed, and yeah. the comedy moments are even funnier when yeah. they're sort of big yeah. and loud. And I do think it's the, it's the greatest last line of any movie, except potentially The Apartment. Yeah. But it is still absolutely... What's the last line of The Apartment? The last line is Shut Up and Deal. Shut up and... No, man. Something like a heart. Nobody's perfect. Come on! <laughs> OK, Steve, thank you so much for coming. I, I, I love Widows. Thank I think you. it's just terrific, thank and I, I, I hope everybody goes to see it. I wish you all the best with the award season, which I know is completely nuts and uh, doesn't No, don't anything. wish me all the best. Wish me the best for the next picture. OK, I wish you all the best for the next picture. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous Steve McQueen. So, I told you we were getting straight into things. So, uh, we've had a lot of questions here about if uh, somebody's a film journalist, they want to break into film journalism, how do they do it? And I've always answered that I am so old that I no longer know, because when I began in film journalism, it was through print. It was through going to magazines like City Life and Time Out and New Musical Express and that kind of thing. However, fantastically, for the first time, there is now an answer to the question of if you are a film journalist and you want to break into film journalism, how can you do it? Because... Thanks to the miracle of Simon Brew, formerly of Den of Geek, we now have a magazine which exists with a primary purpose of getting new writers to get their writing into print. To talk about it, please welcome to the stage the great Simon Brew. Simon, welcome Hello. to the show. Hello. You've been here before. So explain to us, Film Stories, what's the story behind it? Um, well, it exists with opportunity at its heart of it. 
So I, I, the, the shortest version of the story is I launched Den of Geek about 10, 11 years ago. I came out of Den of Geek over the summer. I sat down and thought, well, what's the most insane possible thing I could do? How could I possibly commit career and commercial suicide uh, just in one <laughs> go? Um, and what idiot would launch a print magazine at the point where print's supposed to be dead? So I thought, that sounded great. <laughs> just like, so that's exactly what I decided to do. Um, my frustration was, I love print. I love film. I've done magazines for an awful long time, even before I was doing websites. If you're trying to break into the industry, or if you're a filmmaker um, who's just coming through, how do you get noticed? How do you get that first break? I was lucky. I had people who held the ladder for me. You were one of them, actually. And I kind of think it's incumbent on people who've had the ladder held to, for them to then hold it for someone else. So then I thought, well, if you're going to do a film magazine, first of all, it's got to be mainstream, because I want people to read it. So I want the great big article about Batman. That got a round of applause. Yeah, yeah. That literally yeah, whoever clapped, <laughs> I really love you. But I want the article about Batman to be next to the, to the article about a no-budget film filmed in Dudley, because that just kind of ensures that it'll all mix up and it'll all get... Plus, also, it's bonkers. People will read that, you know, because you, you kind of... I love, I love the existing film magazines that are out there at the moment. I've got no urge of going into competition with them. They will trounce me. Um, I'm fine with that. But I think what we can do with this is just wildly different, still exists with the mainstream, still rooted in the fact that cinema is fun. So a couple of opportunity things for... I know you've got a crowd there, so I'm going to talk fast. No, you go a ahead. A couple of opportunity things for the people who are out there now looking at me, thinking, where did he get this shirt from? Uh, it's British <laughs> Home Stores, no longer in existence. Um, two things. If you are a filmmaker... Um, you don't need me here, do you? I'll be honest with you. If you are a filmmaker and you can't get coverage for your film anywhere... Right? Come and talk to me. You know, um, I, I'm actively looking to, to give British productions uh, a leg up. It might just be a small news thing. It might be I put your trailer on a website. I might not like your film, in truth, um, but that's fine. It doesn't mean I'm not going to talk about it. Unless it's really horrible, nasty stuff, but, you know, unless it's like slagging off Costner and Statham yeah, and yeah, stuff. Yeah, there are certain, certain, certain things know, there, which there are. There are certain lines. So very briefly, best Statham movie? Uh, oh, it's Crank. Um, no, it's not. So, so <laughs> no, it's, it's not. hello. Are we still there? I thought we'd had this chat a long time ago. Um, right, that's very quaint. Uh, I love Hummingbird, but it's just that. Um, so, if you are someone who has always wanted to write about film, right? My other frustration in life, and I am a reformed sinner, because when I started it, 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 when I started my previous project, we had a year or two where we weren't paying people. I just thought, this is nuts. This is insane. I wasn't taking money, but this is nuts. This is insane. I will have no shrift with that at all in any project that I do from now on, and haven't done for about seven, eight years. I don't want you thinking I'm two-faced. I, I learnt this the hard way. I think it's fundamentally wrong. I think if there are people out there who can write who have a brain, who have got words, who put their words in. Let, even if you don't write for me, let me tell you this. Your words have value. Your words have absolute <laughs> fundamental value. And a reward... Uh, I know you're on a schedule. Right. A reward, you know, even if you don't pitch to me, a reward doesn't have to be money. It could be like... Yeah, it could, it, you know? No, go on, keep going. It could, it could be, you know, half an hour of careers advice. It could be something. But your words have value. That said, I will pay you. I won't pay you much. I'll pay, we're paying a flat rate of £30 a page because it's pretty much self-funded and a bit of Kickstarter. If we sell loads of copies and economies of scale kick in, I will up your rate. I will pay you fast. But also, a fundamental part of this magazine is I promise, I promise, 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 that at least two writers in each issue of the magazine, there are 20 
28 writers in issue one who've been paid for their work. At least two writers every single issue, and we are monthly from January, which is terrifying, will be getting their first, their first paid writing work. <laughs> So, if you think about that, if you've got anything in your head that you want to write about, um, do the maths. Between now and the end of next year, I need to find 24 new writers who have never been paid for film writing work. And let me tell you, the, the diversification of the people who are coming through is amazing. It's absolutely amazing. And it strikes me, it, it's just about lowering this drawbridge of opportunity. I guarantee there's someone in this room who's like really quiet and just thinks their idea doesn't necessarily matter and shall I go and talk to each other? You are exactly the person who should just come and talk to me. Just come and take a card. We don't have to have a chat. I'm from the Midlands. I'm socially backwards. It's fine. <laughs> right? But just come and have a chat. But then if you believe in what we're doing... So <laughs> If, we, if you believe in what... Not everyone from... The, it's on the podcast, isn't it? Sorry. No, uh, not everyone. Simon. But if you fundamentally believe in what we're doing, the one thing I would ask is do support us. Do buy a copy. Do buy a subscription. Do buy a subscription for all of your loved ones. Buy a subscription for everybody. It's the only way we'll keep going. But fundamentally, to answer your question that you asked right at the start, it happened because I really believe in it and I really think opportunity has been lacking and I kind of wanted to put my money where my mouth is. Okay. I'll tell you that, I mean, most of the people who've come to this show, you, you will know who Simon is because, because of his work at Den of Geek. And I, I'll say this, Simon, I think that you are, and I don't say this lightly, I think you are genuinely one of the good guys. And when I was writing Hatchet Job, it was a conversation that I had with you which completely turned around my, at that time, very negative feelings about the future of film criticism. Because I asked, because Simon was running Den of Geek, and they were, Den of Geek was obeying all the rules of good journalism, of not writing unattributed copy, of you know, not sort of resorting to snark, of attempting to see the good in things, and, and, and being very accountable. And I said, oh, yeah, that's great. You know, I just imagined, well, this is brilliant. But no, I said, how many, you know, how many downloads do you get? And you said, like... That was about two, three million, wasn't it? it was no, but you, you said about two or three. I went, oh, yeah. it's great, thousand. You went, no million. I went, what? <laughs> and you were proof that it was possible for somebody to have good journalistic ethics and to write good, proper film journalism and still to have an enormously wide readership. I think this is a magnificent venture. And because there are so many people who've come up and said, how do I get into film journalism? Believe me, you know, Simon is a good guy. He is somebody who is doing all of this from the very best possible motives. And it's actually good. It's a All right, really don't sound so surprised no, no. at that bit, Mark. I was just like... Do you really think Crank is the best state film? Yeah. It's, but it's, just, it's not. It's not anything. It's not the best. Runs it close. Transporter runs three. It yeah, Transporter yeah, yeah. three is better. Tell you what. If this sells twenty thousand copies, I'll reenact Transporter three on your stage for you. Okay. <laughs> and for those of you who know Transporter three, that's something to be very afraid of. Ladies and gentlemen, Thank you. Simon Brew. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Moving on to our, our, our next guest. You know, for ages we were doing this, uh, this segment which was called Guilty Pleasures. And a number of people said, well, you know, I'm not guilty about the films that I love. I, I, I love them and I just want to celebrate them for what they are. So we kind of succumbed to public pressure. And we created a new section which is called The Film That, uh, the film that Changed My Life. But I also wanted to keep Guilty Pleasure because it was something that I always kind of liked. So, brilliantly, we have uh, as our next guest somebody who has chosen both a film that changed their life and a guilty, not that guilty, but kind of a little bit guilty, but we still get to use the still. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage the fabulous Josie Lawrence. Now, Josie, I know that we're not technically... We're not going to start with guilty pleasure, and I know that the guilty pleasure isn't actually that guilty at all, but let's, no, no. let's start with a bit of background. Yeah. Can you remember watching films and thinking that's what makes me want to act, being inspired by stuff on screen? Absolutely, yeah. The, the first one was Women in Love. The Ken um, Russell. The Ken Russell, uh, with Glenda Jackson and uh, Adam Bates um, and Oliver Reed wrestling is also fantastic. <laughs> Uh, do, you know, do you know the story? Because Ken was a neighbour of mine. I was very good friends with Ken. He told the story that when they were first doing that scene, they thought that because of the way that the censorship laws worked, they would have to somehow cover it up and do it. So they decided to move it to a, to a stream by moonlight so that it was much more... And he said, and apparently, Oliver Reed turned up at his door in the middle of the night with a copy of the Lawrence and banged on his door and said, it's not in a stream. It's not in a stream. Not in a it's stream. in front of... And that's why he ended up having the courage to do it as he did, you know, by the firelight, the fire. which, which then went on to be this kind of extraordinary... Yeah. He said it was down to Oliver Reed saying, we're not doing it like that, we're doing it like this. There's so many extraordinary scenes, but the extraordinary person for me was uh, Glenda Jackson. I was already completely in love with Beryl Reed, who perhaps a, a lot of you don't know, but she did the most amazing films, um, Entertaining Mr Sloan and The Killing of Sister George. And she'd been known before that as, oh, Beryl, you're just a comic. But what she gave to those parts was so wonderful. So I was already in love with Beryl. And then I saw Glenda being so fearless. And there's an amazing scene where she dances in front of this these ginger cattle, and it's so sexy, and come on then, fellas. And I love the fact that she seems to have no vanity, that actress. I did yeah. get to meet her, by the way. I went to see Leah. Did you see her in Leah? Bloody hell. So you're 80 years old, and you decide to go back to acting, and you say, I think I'll do Leah. You know? <laughs> that uh, was very good. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, um, and I know Jane Oryx and Celia Imrie were, were in it, so, and they know I love uh, Glenda Jackson. My, like? my all-female impro group is the Glenda J Collective, and my, my cat is Glenda Jackson. My neighbours thought I was mad when I first got her. She escaped and went on up a tree, and it's pouring down a rain, and I'm on a neighbour's roof of their shed, going, Glenda Jackson, please come down! <laughs> 
but any, anyway, I'm in the dressing room having a glass of wine with Jane and the seals, and the, the door goes, and, and Jane goes, why don't you open it, Josie? And so I, <laughs> I, so I open the door, and there's Glenda. I think she's got plastic bag. I think she's just been outside to have a fag, which is another reason I love her. Uh, and uh, she said, I hear there's wine. <laughs> and uh, and uh, she was just amazing. And then, and then Celia and, and, and Jane said, tell, tell Glenda what your cat's called. <laughs> and I went, it's called Glenda Jackson. And she went, oh, fuck no. <laughs> and I thought, I'm not going to tell her about my old... She'll think I'm a stalker. But anyway, <laughs> she, to me, turned my life around, her and, and Beryl. Um, that was a long answer. But they are fantastic. Please watch uh, The Music Lovers, Women in Love, watch yeah. everything she's done. I mean, it, I think that the work that she did with Ken Russell particularly was really extraordinary because I, they, I think they were, they were kind of like kindred spirits yes. in, in understanding what that material was about. Yeah. And the extraordinary thing about her is going from that and then going into politics. And yeah. you know, she did very, very seriously for many And then, as yeah. you say, returning to the acting afterwards. Yeah. And I've met her just once and she seemed very, very impressive. And yes. I was sort of slightly same as you, so slightly sort of starstruck that I didn't, you know, you are Glenda Jackson. Yes. It's like the Queen or something. Yeah, she's just wonderful, and I, I think she's just on three, three Tall Women on Broadway, isn't she? I would, I would love, my dream one day, my, my bucket list would be to work with her. Now I've told you that story. I probably never will. So, Josie, we asked you to choose yes. a movie that changed your life. What did you choose? I chose um, a, a, a film, uh, an Italian film called... Mir <laughs> I chose a film. A film. Yeah. <laughs> I chose a film. Uh, Any called, film at all, uh, you just like movies. Miracle in Milan, directed by uh, Vittorio De Sica, which I came across by accident just watching the television late at night. And it grabbed me by the heart and by the soul. It's the most extraordinary magical realism, I guess, right from the very start. An old woman finds a baby in a cabbage patch and decides to bring him up. And when she dies, he becomes homeless and takes to the streets. It's a film about love, about poverty. It has the most magical ending that if it doesn't break your heart, then you're not human. Um, and I, I, I loved everything about it. Just the, the, the very beginning, even, the, there's a, a pan of milk that boils over, and the little boy is watching it, and it boils over, and it boils onto the kitchen floor. And the, the granny comes back and sees all the milk on the floor, and she goes, oh! She gets out a little box of trees and buildings, and she makes a little town of, in the river of milk. And uh, there's an angel in it. There's a magical dove. It's... Just gorgeous. Please watch it. You said that you had bumped into it on television. Can you remember vaguely when that was? Oh, God, years ago. Yeah, so back in the time when tele when you could bump into a movie yes. like that on television. Late night, yeah. Because, I mean, there were yeah. so many people who, you know, were watching movies 20, 30 years ago. You'd turn on the television and there and they would be loads and loads of foreign language films. Yeah. And, and don't you miss that now? I, don't you I miss so the miss fact it. that people can't... They yeah. don't have that same experience. Yeah, yeah. So when you see that... It made you fall in love with cinema? It made you think, how did it change your life? Well, I suppose really what, what really got me was I, I love uh, taking something, um, ordinary I suppose, and turning it around into something magical. And I think because, um, although I've, I've acted a lot, um, people know me for improvisation. 
And I think the thing with improvisation is that's part of you. you. You've got to have a mind that's a little bit weird. And also, you know, I am a Midlander as well, so you know, we, we are a bit weird. We are a bit strange. Um, but you'll find that the West Midlands is full of magical realism. Uh, I love it. But, uh, but, uh, that's, um, but I think it was that slight kink in something that, that I appreciate and that I learned to go with because so many what I call serious actors, and, and good actors will understand this, when you go, serious actor. Um, a, a serious actor also has the ability to do great comedy. Do, do you know what I mean? And because the two are interlinked. Sadness, laughter, it's inter around a deathbed, something very funny can happen, something strange. And, and that's why I like films like this, because it's not, well, it is black and white, but it's... Um, <laughs> wrong thing to say but uh you know it's uh, it's it's the kink in it the little kick and what happens at the end i won't spoil it for you but it's it's just wonderful but also you, it's interesting you said you're, you're known for comedy because you starred in a film that opened the london film festival i did yes yeah. which was yes Reservoir Dogs. Reservoir no. Dogs, that's right, yes. <laughs> you, were, you were Mr no, Pink. Enchanted April. It was filmed at the same time as Reservoir Dogs. But it didn't but have there, any guns. But the comparisons end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was Miranda Richardson and Joan Playwright. And, and you, uh, you were on the poster. Yeah, I was, uh, yeah, I was the, the, the lead. <laughs> um, yeah, Enchanted April, it's a very yeah. good film. Yeah. It was wonderful to do. Very odd to do, though, because it's meant to be uh, these uh, women in Victorian times leaving England that's all rainy and dark and horrible to go to um, Portofino and to Castella Brown, which is where Elizabeth von Arnhem wrote yeah. the novel. And, and then it was completely the other way around. It was the sunniest spring we'd ever had in London, so we had to have the rain machines and the worst spring they'd ever had in, <laughs> in Italy. But, no, it was wonderful to do. And it was, Mike Newell did that just before he did Four Weddings and a, a Funeral. Oh. Now, we also asked you to choose a guilty pleasure, and it's not, yeah. it's not very guilty. What you did was you said you choose a movie, movie that, that always makes you laugh and oh, always makes you happy. Even, even... I played... This particular scene and a couple of others, just before I had to have an operation, don't worry, only a minor operation, but an operation nonetheless, I mean general. Um, uh, and then I played this before I left the house and it made me laugh. Shall we just go straight into the, yeah. into the clip in that case? was that the band was down. I think that the problem may have been that there was a Stonehenge monument on the stage that was in danger of being crushed by a dwarf. Oh, dear me. I love, I love it that at the end of all, all that with the manager, the, the bassist goes, uh, one question, are we going to do Stonehenge tomorrow? <laughs> no, we're not. This... There's two things about Spontap, quite apart from the fact that it is genius and it stands the test of time. Firstly, the soundtrack album is surprisingly listenable because those songs are actually yeah. pretty good. Yeah. And secondly, it is, it's so close to not being fast. I mean, you could, you could watch that and almost think, with the exception of the, the tiny stone edge, yeah. you could almost think that is seriously just... Oh, absolutely. Every single scene has, is, is just 
perfect in a way. And, and the lines, you know, when they meet the the group that they're jealous, they smell the glove, you know, they, the glove, go, yeah. they go, and they say, yeah, yeah, what one girl, They were They were still booing him when we came on. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous Josie Lawrence. So, uh, we always ask people to sort of send in uh, questions. Is Andrew Meek in the audience? Andrew, go ahead. Given the latest price that a cinema ticket could cost as much as £40, what would be the maximum that you would be prepared to pay to go and see a film? And what film would that be? Okay, see... Now, you've all seen these news stories, right? And this is to do with, it's, it's the Odeon in Leicester Square, and the report was that they're going to be charging £40 for, for the seat, and they've done all these refurbishments, and it's all going to be, you know, fantastic and different. So, so, because most critics spend most of their time watching things for free, okay, but I still do go to the cinema quite a lot, so I went just last night to see Mortal Engines, because they were previewing it over the weekend, and I think that costs, like, 15, 16 quid. I live out in Southampton, so obviously, you know, it's, it's, it's not London prices. I mean, if somebody said to me, I am going to do, you know, a screening of Silent Running in, uh, you know, really sort of perfect picture and perfect sound, and I guarantee you there will be nobody in the auditorium on their mobile phone or eating or going, what's he doing? He's, where's, he, where's he not? There's no gravity. Why is he there? It's, I, it's, it's the sun. He knows it's the sun. If I could guarantee all of that, I'd pay 100 quid, frankly. <laughs> But it will be interesting to see what happens with the 40 quid ticket price. I mean, I, I still remember very clearly when I was a kid, you used to be able to do the cinema cost two pounds. And it was two pound 50 if it was a double A certificate film because you had to be 14. Um, finally, John uh, Ramchandani, are you here? There. We just run the microphone down to John. Hi, it's a, a very Christmassy question here. Happy um, Christmas. Happy Christmas. Uh, what film quote would you want as an epitaph on your headstone? <laughs> <laughs> ho, ho, ho. Well, let me... Before, OK, before I answer that, what would you have on yours? OK, so, uh, my life is as good as an ABBA song. It's as good as Dancing Queen. That's very good. That's very good. I, I know what I'm having on my, on my tombstone, uh, so I've, I've said this for ages, and it's not going to change. It's not a movie quote. My tombstone is going to say there is no such thing as a cheap laugh, because I do genuinely think that that's the phrase that has been most important in my life, along with don't be disrespectful about Elvis. There is no such thing as a cheap laugh. But Spike Milligan, apparently, on his gravestone, it said, I told you I was ill. <laughs> but, if I, but if I had to have a quote, if I had to have a quote from a movie, it would be, how do you go about getting an exorcism? Which I think would just be lovely on a, you know... <laughs> On a gravestone, it's just this lovely moment. Brings together all my all my favourite all my favourite things. Anyway, so look, uh, I told you that this was a, a guest pack show, and I am so thrilled about this. Um, Bohemian Rhapsody opened in cinemas uh, a few weeks ago, and you know the critics were kind of having you know, wrestling with and getting their heads around it. And I went to see it, and I I loved it. I I really loved it. And uh, brilliantly, we've got Rami Malek, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, Rami Malek. <laughs> All right. Robbie, I'm so thrilled that you're here. I really, really love Bohemian Rhapsody. And as I said, I was, you know, I was a queen. For, one of the very first gigs I ever saw 
was Queen at Hyde Park, which is a, you know, you're not from... You're from oh, no, I know. Yeah, fine. And, uh, and they, they... I must have been 12, I think. Um, it was 1975, 70, just when uh, Bohemian Rhapsody was out. And there was a whole day of music. There was Kiki D and Supercharger and Steve Hillage. I know you're not interested in this, but this is very much... And then Queen couldn't come on until the, 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 the sky had gone dark because they had a light show. And they started by playing on tape the operatic scene from Bohemian Rhapsody. And then when it goes into the rock bit, they came on stage. And I was so overwhelmed that I burst into tears. I literally was in floods of tears. And watching Bohemian Rhapsody, I cried three times. It just, it just got right... It got me back to being a kid and being... I'm doing it again now. I'm really tearing oh. up. So... Um, look, Thank I tell you, and I'm sorry. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, look, should we... Let, let, let me show... Has, how many people here have seen Bohemian Rhapsody? Great. So quite a few, but just for those who haven't, here is a little compilation reel of some of Rummy's best moments from Bohemian Rhapsody. OK. Roger, there's only room in this band for one hysterical queen. Mamma mia! Mamma mia, let me go! Freddie, concerning your private life. What more do you need to know? I make music. What's the lyric? We're all legends. So, um, right. physically, how did you get into that role? Because it's such a physical performance. Well, I sat down early on and realized uh, it was going to take a lot of work to get there physically. He's like uh, no one I've ever seen before. Uh, he moves his body in such a unique way. and. I remember talking to the producers and telling them early on when we sat down, they, they had seen me in Mr. Robot and for some reason thought that that was, uh, I don't know how, that that person was going to play the polar opposite human being in Freddie Mercury. And I said immediately, I'm not a singer, I, I don't play piano. I, I did tell them that my body articulates itself in a very unusual way and you might, uh, that might work uh, for, you know, might work in playing Freddie. And uh, I realized he was so spontaneous. He wasn't choreographed at all. I didn't want a choreographer. I needed someone to help me with movement. And I remember Eddie Redmayne had had some help with uh, movement coaching in the theory of everything. So I sought his person out, and she was taken, as she now works with him on everything. <laughs> so I found someone new. It was my first time getting the opportunity to audition people. I sat down, and I met this young lady named Polly Bennett, and she talked to me about you know, physicality and uh, where that arrived from as a, as a young man and how, uh, how that evolves in a human being. So, we began working on uh, the, the things that inspired Freddie Mercury, watching Liza Minnelli, watching Jimi Hendrix and David Bowie. Sometimes we'd be in a, a ballet studio in Mayfair and she would ask me to do Killer Queen in, uh, in the for as presented by Marie Antoinette, a soliloquy of some sort. And, you know, all the sudden the evolution of, you know, she drinks Moe Shandon, things, things of that nature started occurring. So it developed this chemistry of, of understanding his physicality and, and why he moved the way he did. When he throws out that fist in, at Live Aid for Radio Gaga, 
you know, we, we realized that's because he was a boxer as a young man. And uh, Sorry, even when you did it just now, you did it in the right shape. I did, yeah. I still got a little bit in me, I suppose. <laughs> Do you find yourself throwing a shape in the shower? I, you know, <laughs> um, yes, yes, I do. Uh, I will say this, it, you know, usually there's some characters you want to walk away from immediately because some are just so taxing emotionally and he's one that I, I almost feel, I'm, uh, it's, like being, it's like being at an airport and saying goodbye to someone you love and you just keep looking over your shoulder and making sure they're still there. Uh, I what want, about the voice? What about the voice? I mean, you said you're not a singer, but the, but the, he had a very particular f way of phrasing. I mean, you hear Freddie Mercury on the radio, and it was. He, how did you get the voice? Well, I did just that. I listened to. I watched all the archival footage you could find, and then uh, after I exhausted that, I just listened to everything on the radio, and you could hear how he ordered a, a gin and tonic, or how he wanted a tea, and when he wanted to be aggressive or coy, you could, I mean, there was just someone there who knew how to, how to talk to everyone and get everything out of them. I hate to, tell me how he would have ordered a gin and tonic. Well, that all depends on who he's talking to. Okay, say he's, say, say he's talking to me, oh, and he's so he, and I've- Long time. Could I have a gin and tonic, darling? <laughs> But what's fascinating about him, what I ended up, what I would end up watching at times with my dialect coach and with Paulie Bennett, his name is William Conacher, is, you know, one of the first things I did is go to Abbey Road and I put four songs on tape, uh, uh, not only recorded them, but we visually recorded them for Brian May and Roger Taylor yeah. to watch. And then afterwards, we did an impromptu press conference where I was just being, you know, thrown questions out and... Uh, so I answered as Freddie, and at one in point, character, in character, yeah, yeah. unscripted, yeah, just started throwing things out, and um, I remember one thing I said. He does say this at, at Live Aid. He says, uh, I think he's about to go on and sing crazy little thing called Love. He says, this song is only dedicated to beautiful people here tonight. Thank you for coming along, making this a great occasion, and he does it in the, in a way that you can hear that something is unusual in his voice. Mm -hmm. And what my dialect coach and I did was go back and listen to his mom talk. So she would be, you know, had a Gujarati accent and that was, uh, has an Indian sound to it. And he would, you know, be, this song is only dedicated to beautiful people here tonight. Thank you for coming along, making this a great occasion. And then we would back off of that and make it more British and more RP. And then you would get, this song is only dedicated to beautiful people here tonight. Thank you for coming along and making this a great occasion. And it was just little things like that. So on, on day one, uh, I believe, after we shot one of the most exhausting scenes, I guess it was day six when we started our first actual um, dramatic scene, uh, my producer came up to me, he said, you sound a little Indian. And uh, he got really worried, but I kind of, I had a hint uh, of a smile as I turned around and was like, okay, something's going on. <laughs> so, something's working in my favor then. You, sorry, it's a rude How old are you? I'm 37 years old. So you, you can't have been old enough to, to have remembered Queen at the time. Not at Live Aid, but I remember, you know, I grew up, well, Wayne's World, I, I would say, was the impetus. <laughs> 
And of course, there is a Wayne's World joke in the there's, in the film. There's a great Wayne's World reference. Uh, I almost want to save it for you for those who haven't seen. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's what this was. But were you a Queen fan? I was a Queen fan. I remember for the first time hearing Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, after that, just I, it was one thing in Wayne's World, but it was an entirely it was a haunting experience. It stopped me uh, as I think something creatively uh, already I knew existed for me as a human being. And that particular song pushed me to a place where I started to identify that very special things could happen, not only in music, but collectively in art as a whole. Okay, how well do you know the Queen Back catalog? You're gonna quiz me. No, no, I'm not gonna. <laughs> How many of the, uh, so I have, I tell you, I have Queen One, well, it was Queen as it was called, Queen Two, Sheer Heart Attack, Night of the Opera, Day at the Races, then I kind of fell away for a little bit and then went back afterwards. And, uh, and I literally, I, those were like prized possessions for me. What was the first Queen album that you owned? I will say, in case it is a competition, I now have Brian May and Roger Taylor. So okay, that's fine, yeah. I think I win. I win. Okay, Rami, what's, okay, what's, what's, what's the best Queen track? Oh, boy, that is tough. There is a correct answer. <laughs> there is a correct There is a correct answer, yeah. Wow, what is the best Queen track of all time? Yeah, yeah, of all time. Without a doubt, Bohemian Rhapsody. That's the wrong answer. Oh. <laughs> it's good, but it's not as good as It's Late. It's Late is terrific. It is, isn't it? That's, it that, is I mean, It's Late song. is like in the same as, you know, ABBA and My Love, My Life. It's Late is the, the album track that actually is the great unsung Queen gem. Yes. And Lily of the Valley you're a fan of. I love Lily of the Valley. You have to go home and listen to Lily of the Valley. I'll tell you what, what the secret for me was in, in playing him is you see him as you know, this, this rock god. He is this deity, a, a monolith, and he gets out there in this crown and cape. And it was very difficult to, to ever think that I was going to step into his shoes or get anywhere close to portraying that element of him. And like I said, I watched all the footage. I tried to, to get as much insight as I could from the, the living uh, legendary members of the band and from Freddie's sister, Cash. But ultimately, I realized what I had was a diary of sorts in all of his songs. Yeah. And so if you look at Lily of the Valley and he sings, uh, I mean, he writes down as if it's, it's a piece of poetry. He says, I, I am forever searching high and low. Why does everybody tell me no? Neptune of the seas, an answer for me, please. And, and in one sense, you hear this sense of profound loneliness and alienation and longing for love, and he's ethereal, and he's poetic, and he'll tell you, well, he says, I'm not, I'm not the world's greatest songwriter. In fact, I hate writing songs, but if you go back and look at what he put down, it stands alone as just great literature. And then when he puts his voice behind it, well, he's singing some of the most powerful things that he feels so deeply inside. And if you're going to sing them over and over, night after night, you know they're coming from a very, very deep, dark place. Yeah. I have to tell you, um, watching the movie, I, I, was, I found it really moving, really, really moving. And I did think, as I think many people have said, that there are scenes watching you doing that it is it's uncanny it is like having you know Freddie Mercury back there in front of you and we're in awards season now and you are your performance is being recognized how much does it matter to you because the, the, one of the, the best things about Bohemian Rhapsody is the audience got it first they did they did um, that's one incredibly powerful accomplishment 
I think one major moment was showing it to Brian May, showing my audition to Brian May and Roger Taylor after I thought they had seen it, but they hadn't downloaded it at, <laughs> at Roger Taylor's apartment. And I so flat, you watched it together? I, I watched it with them, yes. And uh, that was the most terrifying moment. <laughs> there was even a moment where I, we, we, I remember being thrown a question at that impromptu uh, a, um, press conference yeah. we did at Abbey Road, and I couldn't remember the answer, but. The, the question was, uh, who's the person that you trust the most? And in that moment of just, you know, being a bit terrified standing between them, I couldn't remember had I, had I answered Brian or Roger. And fortunately, I, as Freddie, I said, oh, Mary, Mary's the person that I trust the most. And that was the love of his life. And I remember the both of them just looking at me going, oh, okay, all right, that's all right. Um, but, I think there were such surreal moments when Brian May would be on set and I would be talking to him in character because I did stay in character when I was working uh, on the film. It was surreal for people watching a, a young version of Freddie Mercury talking to an older Brian May. And I thought, okay, you can't beat this. And then to have them come and watch the film and and I think you know they, they were really moved by it emotionally. and, and just to have this relationship with them now where they like me <laughs> is, uh, is it's the most profound accomplishment to be able to tell his story and, and do it some bit of justice and honor and perhaps share it with a new generation is, is the greatest gift I could ask for. If, if anything comes that you know, is a symbol of, of I, I don't know, the appreciation I have for the band and we, what we collectively have for what he and that band were able to do in their story, then, then that's icing on top. Rami, I think the performance is, is really terrific, and I hope that it gets properly recognised uh, during the, the forthcoming awards season. Seriously, as somebody who was a, you know, a, a real queen born, believe me, I am twice as old as you are. I sat there in that cinema thinking that I was a 12-year-old, 14-year-old all over again, and I, uh, so much of that is down to your performance. Thank you. I think you did a really brilliant job, and I'll, I'll, I'll probably start crying again in a moment. So, ladies and gentlemen, Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm very pleased to say that a guest who we thought was held up at the airport has managed to arrive. How many of you have seen Three Identical Strangers? An extraordinary documentary. Please welcome to the stage Tim Wardle. How you doing? Good. Sit, sit, sit. Thank you. Tim, <laughs> let's start by just showing the trailer to, to... Because one of the things with Three Identical Strangers is it's always worrying about how much we're allowed to, to say or not to say, OK? So here is the trailer that tells you, I think, just about as much as we're allowed to say. I wouldn't believe the story if someone else were telling it, but it's true, every word of it. It started when I went to college. It was the first day of school. All these people are coming up to me saying, Eddie, how are you? Eddie, hi. I'm like, my name's not Eddie. I don't know what you're talking about. As soon as this guy turned around, I knew it was Eddie's double. I said, you're not going to believe this. You have a twin brother. Oh, my God. As I reached out to knock on the door, it opens. And there I am. His eyes are my eyes, my eyes are his eyes, and it's true. And then the story went from being amazing to incredible. It was an article to Twins Reunited. I think I might be the third. Tim, it's, 
it's the most remarkable story, and I do want to be careful about what we say about it because one of the things I loved about seeing the film was not knowing this. I know it, it was a story that was in the press. I didn't know any of it at all. And one of the things I think you do best is that you tell it like a thriller, like a genre movie. You, just, you reveal just as much as the audience needs to. And I did this, all those quite I said, no, no, no! <laughs> It is, it's a great story. I mean, one of the, the choices we made really early on was to kind of force, force the perspective of, of the audience. So you kind of experience it, and, and things are revealed to you as they were revealed to the brothers. So these, these twists keep coming, but you're very much in their shoes as you go through it. Um, and, you know, if you haven't seen it yet, the less you read about it, the better. There is, there is a lot out there now. The crazy thing is when we started making it, there, w there was very little information. It exists in this kind of pre-internet era where there was a bit around their reunion and there's a bit around the kind of big twist that happens later, but not much. And we kind of had to piece together this story that kind of stretched over 60 years. It was a mission. When did you realise at first that the movie was more than just a documentary? Because now it's got such extraordinary reviews and it has really become a sensation. When did you know that it worked? Well, I think actually today, The Rock just tweeted about it today. <laughs> or, so... Uh, <laughs> Or Instagram, wow. sorry, Instagram. So I feel like that's, for a documentary, that is making it. That's extraordinary. And what did The Rock tweet? Or he had a big plate of food, and he had the film playing on a laptop, and he said, highly recommended, or something like that. <laughs> what was the most difficult thing about, about not blowing it? What was the most difficult thing about holding back the information? It's, tri it's tricky, because I think... Um, I, you know, I've always loved films like The Usual Suspects and things like that, which have these 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 reveals. But there are the information is seeded earlier. So if you're smart enough, you, you, you when they hit you, you're like, oh, if I know I'd noticed that from earlier. You know, things are sort of information is is is, is seeded earlier. And a big challenge was like how much to how much of that information to put in before people could kind of kind of guess. And and I get, as I say, you know, what we just did is kept on thinking, what did the brothers know at this point? What did they know? And so it means that when you go through it, it doesn't just feel like a kind of oh, wow, there's a clever twist. It's like you're hopefully emotionally invested in their journey because you're going through it with them. And when things kind of come and hit, swipe them from the side, they, they do that to you as well. And you, you managed to do these kind of his, these recreations. At the beginning, we almost follow it like a drama. That he's telling the story about first day at school. So how, how, how difficult was it to do that stuff, to do the kind of the, the shots of them on the campus and things? It's difficult. I'm sort of agnostic about reconstruction and documentary. I mean, I think it can be done really well, like The Imposter, Bart Layton, who, who, who I work with. Um, yeah. But we had to get that stuff because, as I say, you know, I wanted the audience to experience the story as they did. And before they met and became famous, there's no archive of them, really. So we had to use reconstructions, but it's very kind of judicious. We kind of just used it only when we had no other options. Um, do awards matter? Because I know we're, there's a lot of awards talk about it. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm out. I've been out. I've just flown in from LA. This is why I'm late. And, I know. And it's, I'm glad you're here. I it's, mean, it's, it's kind of a weird, you know, there's a very small number of people in the documentaries branch who, who, who make the decision on what gets through and what doesn't. It's way more political. I mean, it's my first feature. I'm just learning a lot about it. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think getting shortlisted or nominated would be insane and incredible for the whole team, not just for me. And it, when you look at the film, what are you most proud of about it? What am I most proud of? I think just... When you make a documentary, you have like a duty of care to your contributors, you know, the people in your film, and that's really important. But with this, the story was so incredible. I almost felt like I had a duty of care to the story. You know, the first week in the edit, my, my editor, Michael Hart, who's here, sort of turned to me and he said... We Can I just say brilliant editing? Really brilliant editing. I mean, that was a really bang-up editing job. Yeah. 
it's his first feature as well. But he, he turned to me in this first week and he just sort of, it was just pause, and he said, we were never going to work on a story as good as this in our entire lives, which is kind of depressing. But um, so in answer to your question, you know, I felt a duty of care to the, to the story and just to not mess it up and tell it as well as we could. Um, and hopefully we've kind of delivered on that. Well, Tim, I think you've done a brilliant job. I'm glad that you actually managed to get here. I'm so we were getting these messages. He's at the airport. He's like a million miles away. He's at Gatwick. I'm so pleased. If anybody hasn't seen Three Identical Strangers, please do go and see it in the cinema. I mean, it's you know, I, I think it's something that it, it benefits from being seen in the cinema. I, I think so. I mean, I always saw it as a kind of cinematic experience. Tim, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure, and I'm so glad you got here. Congratulations. Thank you. So there we are. That was the Mark Kermode Live in 3D Christmas special. I do the MK3D shows every month at the BFI South Bank in London. If you want to come along, just go to the BFI box office. However, if you can't get to London and you'd like to see me do one of the live shows, I've been touring the country recently with a show called How Does It Feel, which is based on a book that I've written, How Does It Feel? A Life of Musical Misadventures. And I have two shows coming up in the new year. One of them on Monday the 21st of January at the Birmingham Rep Theatre, and one on Monday the 4th of February at Newcastle at the Northern Stage. If you want to come along, you can get tickets by going to markkermode.co.uk. There's links to both of the venues. And if you enjoyed this show, then please do subscribe. Thanks a lot. Rock and roll has been going downhill ever since Buddy Holly died. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.